the aftermath of the climactic events at the end of Parshas Balak, where Pinchas kills Kozbi and Zimri, thereby halting the deadly plague, Parshas Pinchas picks up with God's immediate reaction and declaration in the aftermath of those events, where God declares unambiguously his support for Pinchas' actions, the righteousness of those actions, how he has zealously guarded God's honor, he has quelled God's anger, and saved the Jewish people. As a result, the opening sukkim of our parsha seems to describe two different gifts, two different rewards that Pinchas merits because of his zealousness. And we will divide today's shear and tomorrow's shear into discussing these two psukim, these two rewards, these two gifts that Pinchas seems to receive as a reward uh, for his zealous righteousness in killing Kazbi and Zimri. The first of those, the one we'll discuss today, is in Pasuk Yudbet, right at the beginning of the Parsha, where we are told, I'm giving the covenant of peace. Now, Rashi, it should be noted, uh, disagrees with pretty much all the other Mepharshim. Rashi does not see this as a separate, independent gift or reward, but rather as a statement that the reward which we will learn about tomorrow in the next Pasuk, that that single gift and reward that Pinchas is getting, it was being given, bishalom, it was given with, so to speak, a full heart. That God is giving this with tremendous enthusiasm. And in essence, says Rashi, just like a human being would be very appreciative of someone who did a great favor to him or her. So too, Hashem is saying, Pinchas did a great favor for me by killing these people, by halting the plague, by saving the Jewish people, and therefore I feel tremendously grateful to him, and therefore I will be giving this gift to him, this reward, which we'll talk about in the next Pasuk, and in tomorrow's year, I am doing it bishlemut with a full heart. But as I mentioned, that's really a minority view. Most Mepharshim do see bris shalom as an independent gift, and of course that begs the question, what is the gift of shalom? Shalom is a notoriously vague and ambiguous and hard to define term. Everyone wants peace, but no one really knows what it means. What exactly does it mean in this context that Pinchas is given the bris shalom? So one group of Mepharshim led by the Ibn Ezra and others suggest that it means a protection from the Gol Hadam or other enemies who might have wanted to exact revenge on Pinchas. After all, Zimri was not just a person who presumably had a family who loved him who would want revenge, he was the Nasi of the tribe of Shimon. There might have been other tribesmen or other people who were fans or Talmidim, if you were, of Zimri. He was a prominent person, and they might have wanted to take revenge on Pinchas, and therefore he could have spent the rest of his life under the cloud of worry that someone was going to kill him, that he'd be always at risk for a revenge killing because of what he did. Therefore Hashem says, I'm intervening, I have your back as it were, I promise you, you are safe. No one will take revenge, not the family, not the friends of Zimri. You are safe, says uh, Kodesh Baruch Hu, you have a brish shalom, nothing will happen to you. Another interpretation is suggested by the Sephorno, as well as Rabbeinu Bachaye, that the brish shalom here means protection and peace from the Malachamabas, from the angel of death. That is to say, that Pinchas is blessed with an exceedingly long life, an uncharacteristically long life, longer even than other of his biblical contemporaries. And in fact, they point out that we have numerous indications from Tanakh, where Pinchas seems to be living many, many, many centuries into the future, way beyond the initial generation of the Midbar, in which he currently lived in the stories that we're reading, even in the time of Plegj Begiva and other such stories, we see indications of Pinchas still living, and the, the Midrash, which is the basis of the Svarnar Rebbeinu Bechaye, who make this point, say that Pinchas lived this incredibly long life. This goes beyond the fact, this goes in addition to the fact that there are some Midrashim who seem to say that Pinchas is Eliyahu Anavi. So maybe he didn't even just live long, maybe he has never even died. But even if you assume that Pinchas died, it's clear they say, based on Midrashim, that Pinchas lived a much longer life than most of his contemporaries, and they say that's what's being hinted at as this first reward, the reward for killing uh, Zim. Zimri and Cosby, the reward for halting the plague was a bris shalom, a bris of long life. 
A next interpretation uh, is offered by the Nitziv, a very beautiful and important interpretation in the Hamek Dover, where the Nitziv says that the Shalom here is not peace from any external enemy, not the relatives of Zimri, not even from the angel of death, but rather a inner peace. Shalom Pnimi, an inner peace. Because they explain, Hamik Dover explains that the gravest threat that Pinchas faced at this moment was something that could have affected him and afflicted him internally. Somebody who did what Pinchas did, such an incredibly violent act, even though it was clearly a legitimate action, clearly moral, clearly endorsed by Hashem in our psukim, nevertheless, the natural result of such an act would have been to live a life of inner turbulence, of anxiety, of having a quick temper, of never being at ease, never being at peace with himself, of being irritable and just unhappy. And therefore he gets the greatest gift, says the Nitziv, that of shalom, of inner peace, that all those natural negative reactions, the natural negative impact or result that his actions should have had on him, Hashem says, I'm intervening to make sure that that does not happen. Even when you do a legitimate and absolutely correct and moral act of violence like Pinchas, it could have negative impact on the person. And therefore Hashem says, despite what could have naturally happened, I, God, am intervening to protect you, to give you an inner peace, not to worry about becoming irritable or upset because of what you've done. Last but not least is the remarkable interpretation of Hashem Shunafal Hirsch, who also seems to explain that it's not so much a gift or a reward, but rather a statement of affirmation, an unambiguous statement affirming the correctness and the morality of Pinchas's action, that it was an action of shalom, even though it looks at first glance to the naked eye as an act of war, of violence. We don't usually think of war or violence or killing as furtherance of peace, says Rav Hirsch, but we make a mistake. True peace, says Rav Hirsch, can only come not between men, but when all mankind are living in consonance and consistent with the values and the laws of Hashem. And therefore, when you have such a violent, or should I say, an extreme breach of that standard, the immorality that was being uh, done by Zimri with Cosby and the other Jewish people, which brought this deadly plague, so by halting that, even in such an extreme and violent way, by halting that, Hashem wants us to know that what Pinchas did wasn't just correct or good, but it was actually a truly act of peace. What seems like such an act of war, if you will, killing another person or killing two people, was actually an action of peace. And all those people who were watching on the side, even if they were sincerely upset by it, but they weren't furthering peace. But in fact, it was Pinchas's action that, even though it was violent, but nevertheless, that was truly an act of peace. His action was the basis of true peace, because true peace sometimes can only be accomplished, so to speak, by the tip of the spear, and Pinchas is an example of that, and Hashem wants us to understand on a deeper level the nature of his action. There's a famous joke in rabbinic circles about the man who comes to the rabbi and says, please, please, can you make me a kohen? Rabbi says, listen, I can't really do that. It's not in my hands. And the man says, but I'll give you a big donation to the synagogue. Rabbi says, I still can't do it. And he says, but I'll give a really, really big donation to the synagogue. Finally, the rabbi says, well, for a donation like that, you know, I think I'd be able to help you out. And he says, but just let me ask you one question. I didn't know you were so religious. You know, why is this so important to you? He says, you're right, Rabbi. It's true. I'm not that religious, but my father was a Kohen and I was very close with him. And if it was important to him, it's important to me. I want to be a Kohen like him. The second bracha, the second reward that Pinchas receives is v'haisalo ulazaro acharav bris kuhunas olam. The blessing, the covenant of eternal priesthood, to be a Kohen. And this, of course, raises the question, 
noted by all the earlier Mepharshim, what is the point of this bracha? It's a classic catch-22 memanoshach. If he wasn't a Kohen, no matter what he did, no matter how big his donation to the synagogue is, no matter how great his heroic actions were, you can't make someone a Kohen if they're not. And if he was a Kohen, which we know he was, not only his father, but his grandfather. The Torah tells us at the outset of today's of this week's Parsha, Pinchas ben Lazar ben Arona Kohen, you cannot get better yichus than that. His father was a Lazar, his grandfather was none other than Arona Kohen. Of course he was a Kohen, so if he was a Kohen, what did he need the bracha for? If he wasn't a Kohen, the bracha wouldn't help, and if, since he is a Kohen, what does he need the bracha for? This is the classic question that has to be contended with. So one answer that's given by Rashi, a very technical answer based on Chazal, is that actually despite his pedigree, despite his yichus, his lineage, he was not a Kohen. That when the Kohanim were inaugurated to serve in the Mishkan, Aaron and his children were all of the ones, and anyone else, uh, Aaron and his children were the ones who were inaugurated to be Kohanim, as well as a promise that any future grandchildren born into the family will also inherit the mantle. However, Rashi explains that there was a quirk. A living grandchild at that time was not inaugurated at the time because it was only Aaron and his children and was not included in the bracha that all future Kohanim born into the family would become able to serve in the kahuna, in the, in the Mishkan. And therefore, by a technical glitch, Pinchas and anyone else, if his generation who was alive at the time of the inauguration and the choosing of the Kohanim, was actually left out. So despite his lineage, he was not a Kohen. And therefore, says Rashi, he truly did need this bracha in order to be able to be a Kohen and serve in the Mishkan. That's one answer. A second answer that is suggested by Ramban, Ibn Ezra, and others, is that, well, of course he was a Kohen. His grandfather was Aaron, his father was Elazar. This is a particular bracha, not just that he'll be a Kohen, that he didn't need, but rather that the predominant number of future Kohanim Gidolim, the high priests, will primarily and predominantly come from his family, be his descendants. And in fact, we have a tradition, Tosfus and Masech the Yuma, on Daftas, quotes a tradition that we have, that almost 20 of the Kohanim Gedolim in the first Beis HaMikdash, and over 80 of the Kohanim Gedolim over the length of the second Beis HaMikdash, were all Mizera Pinchas, were all descendants of Pinchas. And that is the bracha of Kunas Olam, that forever and ever, predominantly the Kohanim Gedolim, the high priests, will be from your family directly, Pinchas. That will be your reward. That was a second answer that is given for what is this bracha. A third answer is suggested, a very powerful one, from the Chizkuni and the Abarbanel and other Mepharshim. And they say, again, of course, Pinchas was a Kohen, his grandfather was Aaron, of course he was a Kohen. But this was not a bracha to make him a Kohen, this was a bracha to enable him to remain a Kohen in good standing. After all, the halacha is that a Kohen who kills another person is disqualified from serving in the Mishkan, from serving in the responsibilities of a Kohen. And therefore, Pinchas, even though what he did was correct from a moral perspective, halachic perspective, we see Hashem endorsed his behavior, but nevertheless, a casualty of his initiative and his heroism should have been, by all rights, that he lost his ability to serve as a Kohen to work in the Mishkan. And in fact, therefore, to mitigate against that otherwise natural circumstance and result, says the Cheskuni, says the Yavar Hashem intervened with the second bracha to say, despite what should have happened, despite what might happen at other times in history, when Kohanim perhaps for legitimate reasons like Pinchas, but still take a life, Kohen Chargas Anefesh, 
is disqualified from working in the Mishkan of the base of Mikdash, but Pinchas is an exception, the beneficiary of a special bracha. Pinchas did something special for Hashem, Hashem did something special for Pinchas, and saves him and allows him to keep his position as a Kohen, what he would have otherwise lost. Last but not least is a, a remarkable interpretation of the Kesav Sofer. And he explains not only this bracha of the kahuna, but he explains it in a way that fits beautifully with the first uh, bracha, that of Shalom, the one we spoke about yesterday. Says the Ksav Sofer, the nature of a Kohen, his natural tendency, his personality, has to be one who is an Ohev Shalom, Varodev Shalom, like Aaron HaKohen. They have to be lovers of peace, people who pursue peace, people who are calm and nice and get along easily with people. And therefore, Pinchas was given the bracha of Shalom, that he would have that natural dispensation, that natural tendency to be like his grandfather, and he would therefore be absolutely appropriate in terms of that default set- setting, that the default setting of the Kohen has to be the Oyev Shalom, Varodev Shalom. Pinchas exhibited that, and he certainly had that confirmed by his first bracha, the Brisi Shalom. However, the Ksav Sofer explains that that's not entirely enough. That's the default setting of the Kohen. But Kohanim are also the teachers of the Jewish people. We have a tradition. It's not just that they worked in the Mishkan. They also represent Shevet Levi, Shevet Kahuna, the teachers of the Jewish people. And a teacher, says the Ksav Sofer, sometimes has to be demanding, has to have religious zeal, has to have religious passion, has to have the ability to stand for principle, and not compromise. Moreover, has to have the ability to be mochiach, to criticize and to rebuke the nation when necessary. Someone who is oiv shalom, verodev shalom, only might not be up for those parts of the job, might not have the stomach for those parts of the job. And therefore you need a second dimension as well, and that is the strong, passionate, zealous, non-compromising personality. Therefore, says Aksav Sofer, when Pinchas did this act of zealotry, it's not that he remained a Kohen despite that, it's that that confirmed that he had the dual characteristics necessary to be the ideal Kohen. The appointment and public designation of Yehoshua as the successor to Moshe and the future leader-in-waiting is preceded by a request made by Moshe to Hashem to appoint just such a successor. Yifkod Hashem alokea ruchos l'chol basar, God who is the, the God of spirits of all types of people of all flesh, should appoint ish al ha'eda, should appoint a person, a leader on the congregation, who will go out before them, who will go after them, who will be a leader, take them in, take them out, and who will be a leader but God forbid there should be a gap in leadership. There should be a nation who has no shepherd, a flock without a shepherd. There should be not a nation that does not have a leader. It's immediately thereafter that Hashem tells Moshe, etc., etc., and you will appoint him and designate him publicly as your successor. Rashi, in his comments to Moshe's request, quote, Two incredible and really poignant and profound Midrashim that I'd like to share with you today. The first comment comes from the Medrash Rabbah in Parsha Chaf Aleph, Simon Yadalid. And this has to do with Moshe's desire for a successor. All we get from the actual Torah text is that Moshe wants a successor. There's no indication in the Torah text who Moshe has in mind, or if he has anyone in mind, to be his successor. However, the Medrash suggests that Moshe very much had a personal interest in who should succeed him. And this is triggered in the thought of the Medrash 
by an explanation and discussion of why now, of all times, does Moshe make this request. And the Medrash comments that, in fact, the reason for this was, Kevin Shiyarshu Benos Tzalavcha Ravihen, Amar Moshe Hariani, Triggered by the recent events of seeing the request of the daughters of Tolovchad and ultimately the decision by Hashem to let them inherit their father's land given the fact that there were no brothers, this triggers in Moshe's mind a thought, now that I see that Hashem cares so much about Yerusha and inheritance, so now I should ask also for my own inheritance, who will be my spiritual heir, who will succeed, who will inherit the mantle of leadership. And what is amazing is that according to the Medrash, Moshe very much desired that it would be his children, his sons, who will succeed him. However, very poignantly, and we can only imagine how difficult this must have been for Moshe to hear, Hashem responds that in fact, that is not what I have considered. Commenting on the, using the Pasuk in Mishle in Perakavzain, Dotzer Teina Yochel Periyah, the one who guards the fruit should be the one who benefits from it. The Medrash describes Moshe being told by Hashem that your children, Yashvulahem, below Askubatorah, they were not diligent enough as students. But Yoshua, Harba Sheirescha, he was an unbelievably dutiful student and he was Mesharis Yuhi took care of you, he was a helper and aid, he gave you lots of honor, he would wake up early in the morning to prepare the room, the classroom for the shir, he was there in your service in the morning, at night, all day, making sure, since he served you with all of his might, he should also therefore honor and merit to be the next leader, he shouldn't lose his uh, his deserved reward. And I think there are many lessons to learn from this incredible medrash. First of all, the humanity with which it depicts Moshe. He's not just asking, you know, coincidentally for his sons. The medrash is very blunt and very honest. It describes Moshe as saying, well, if Tzalafchad's daughters got what they got, then therefore the time has come, at the Bar Tzarchi, my needs. This is about what Moshe wants. My children should be Yoresh, my kavod. And this, I think, is a very normal parenting, parental fatherly desire for children to succeed, for children to inherit, for children to provide a continuity. And I think for many uh, father of ours, we would understand this completely. The surprise is the depth of humanity that it ascribes to Moshe. He's no different than a normal father, than any one of us who would very much want his own children to be his successors. And that's really something that's very powerful and very gripping. At the same time, the fact is that leaders, in this case HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, sometimes have to make hard decisions. Sometimes parents have to make hard decisions. And sometimes the one who the immediate leader, in this case the parent wants, isn't always the right and appropriate successor. Moreover, the reasons for Yehoshua being chosen are really very striking here. Uh, it talks not so much about him being such a big Talmud Chacham. It talks about him being a dedicated student and being a dedicated follower and serving the needs and always being around and being there for the needs of Moshe. And this is something which uh, we don't have time to discuss in this brief shir, but this is the idea of Godol Shimusho Yosr Milimudo. Yehoshua is the paradigm of this idea that Sometimes you can gain a lot and really be a more appropriate successor. In this case, 
not so much just because of your book knowledge, but of all of the emotional IQ, so to speak, and the other intangible information that you pick up from being a close and dedicated uh, servant or uh, helper to the leader. This idea of what Yehoshua character possessed in order to be appropriate as a successor is also followed up by Rashi in a second comment, which comes from the Tanhuma. And this is where the Medrash explains why this peculiar Lashon of Elokei Haruchos, why is Hashem referred to here as the God, so to speak, of spirits, Lachol Basar. And the Tanhuma says that Moshe is alluding to the fact that Hashem in his inimitable way, can relate to all people, even though people are so different. Some people are quiet, some people are loud, some people are easy to get angry, some people are calm, and Hashem can relate to everyone. So too, what Moshe is alluding to, is that that's a characteristic that's needed in a leader. That this should be someone who can be sovel kal echad v'echad l'fi da'atan. Yifkod Hashem el-keruchos l'chobasar. It should be somebody who kaviyachol like Hashem can relate to all the different spirits, all the different personalities. And evidently Yehoshua possessed that as well. Not only was he a diligent and dedicated servant and student of Moshe, but he had the unique personal, emotional abilities to be the leader as well. In the Torah's discussion in our Parsha of the Karbanos, there's a very well-known pasuk, Milvad Olas Haboker, Asher Olas HaTamid, Ta'asu Es Eila, that in addition to the Karban Tamid, you also offer Eila, you also bring the Karban Musaf. And based on the construct of this pasuk, the Mishnah very famously, in Masech Tezvachim, tells us that this pasuk is the source for the well-known and very broadly applicable rule of Tadir v'she'enu tadir, tadir kodem. The idea that when you have to pick between two mitzvos, you're not sure which one to do first, frequency, tadirus, is the way we decide which one is first. And therefore says the Mishnah, Kola tadir mechavero kodem chavero, timidim kodem musafim. As we see in our Parsha, the assumption, the implicit assumption of the Pasuk, as Rashi pointed out, is that the timidim are first brought and then the musaf. And you see, says the Mishnah, the reason is because the carbon Tamid is more frequent. It's brought every day. The Muslim is only brought on special days. And if you have two special Karbanos, Shabbos comes out on Rosh Chodesh, or should I say Rosh Chodesh comes out on Shabbos, so you have two Musafs, Shabbos comes first. Musafay Shabbos, Kodan Musafay Rosh Chodesh. Because Shabbos is more tadir than Rosh Chodesh. What about Rosh Chodesh and Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Chodesh comes first because it's more Tadir. And that's the general principle in the Mishnah and Zvachim says that the source of this principle of Tadir Vishnu Tadir, Tadir Kodem, the idea that we give priority and precedence to the one that's more frequent, the source of that is this Pasuk in our Parsha and Parsha's Pinchas, Mavad Tamid Ta'asu Es Obviously, the issue of the Karbonos is not as relevant or practical in our daily lives, but Tadir does come up also in many different occasions. Perhaps the one that's uh, most common, uh, most frequent, uh, no pun intended, is at least for men who put on talus and tefillin, Shulchan Aruch tells us, which one do you put on first? The talus first or the tefillin first? The Shulchan Aruch brings down in Simen Chavhei that you put on the talus first. And the Beis Yosef brings two reasons for this. One might be that there's some symbolic superiority to the mitzvah of tzitzis, because tzitzis is considered equivalent through gematria and other such as, or other symbolisms to all of the mitzvot, tzitzis is shkula l'kol tarakula. But the second reason, and I think a reason that's more well known, is that tzitzis or the talus is more frequent, it's more tadir than the tefillin. We wear talus and tzitzis every day, whereas tefillin we know there are certain days, including every Shabbos, in which we don't. So that's a very common example of where tadir plays a role. Another question that is very fascinating that the postcom discusses 
whether Tadir is merely a way of deciding what comes first when I can do two mitzvos, or could it be the way that we decide which mitzvah to do if I'm in a conflict and I can only do one mitzvah. An example of this comes up if there is a day, could be a Shabbos or other such days, in which I have not daven Mincha or Musaf yet, Mincha or Musaf I haven't done yet, and it's very, very close to sunset. And once it's Shkia, once it's sunset, I won't be able to daven Mincha, I won't be able to daven Musaf, and there's only enough time for me to do one of those. Which one should I do? So this is a very interesting machlokas. The Mishnah Brewer brings this down in Simon Reish Pevav. And there is a major machlokas at poskim. Prominent poskim such as the Shagas Aryeh, the Shachan Archarav say, in this case, even though Mincha is clearly more frequent than Musaf, as the Mishnah already told us, you would actually pick Musaf as the one feeler to say. For the simple reason that if you don't say Musaf, there's no way to make that up. It's just too late, you'll miss it, you'll have done the Avera of not doing Musaf. However, if you haven't Davin Mincha, and you have a good excuse for not having Davin Mincha, we have an escape clause, we have a mulligan that we can pull, we can do it again, which is called Tashlumen, we can do two Marevs and make it up, and therefore we won't really have lost it. And therefore says the Mishnabrura who paskins this way, that that is considered really the relevant argument and determining factor. The fact that Mincha is more frequent is irrelevant, it's not relevant in this kind of case. However, the Mishnah Brewer does note that other poskim disagree with this, and not just other poskim, very prominent poskim. The note of Yehuda and his commentary to the Shulchan Aruch, as well as Rabbi Kiva Eger, both argue and say that based on the fact that Mincha is more tadir, therefore, even in this case where we can't do both, we can only pick one, we will pick Mincha, and that should be the one that you say based on tadir. Very, very interesting machlokes. Perhaps this machlokas is based on a more fundamental question, which is raised by Rabbi Hanan Wasserman in his Kovit Shurim to Psachim. How do we understand this rule of the Mishnah, this rule from our Parsha of Tadir Vashenu, Tadir, Tadir Kodem? It's possible that we could take a much more minimalist or conservative approach and say all it is, all it is, is a Seder Dvarim. It's teaching us a precedence when you have two things that would otherwise be in conflict. We have this in all sorts of areas of life, where you could have two things you know, happening or occurring at once, and we have to decide who to give precedence to, and whatever reason we do, we give it to one over the other, but that doesn't necessarily have any broader implications. It could be a very narrow and localized halacha. You know, for example, I live in Israel, so if two cars uh, want to go into the traffic circle or need to go in the same, you know, or going in opposite directions, so if one of the cars is already in the traffic circle, that car automatically is supposed to get uh, precedence. It doesn't teach you anything broader about traffic, and it doesn't teach you anything broader about the two people involved. It's just a specific, narrow application of how do we avoid conflict, hopefully accidents, and we have to make up a rule. Could be that's all Tadr is. Or you could say no. The very fact that the more frequent one is considered goes first, that itself might indicate something more fundamental, that frequency determines importance. And then maybe that shows that that is more important. That suffix that Rabbi Hanan has about how to understand Tadir is very likely at the heart of this question. If you see it as merely a way of determining precedence when you have conflict, so then it's irrelevant to decide what to do when one mitzvah can be done and the other one can't, when you can only daven muncha or musaf. It's only relevant if you can do both and then you have to know which one to do first. But if you have to pick one, Tadir, according to this first approach, is irrelevant. It won't help us at all. On the other hand, if you understand that What's Tadir and Tadir Kodem is indicating and implies that in fact the more frequent mitzvah is actually more important, then this rule is just as relevant and just as applicable in determining what to do if you can only do one of the mitzvahs.